It's September 2020, and today we have Dr. Anna Gessner, who's coming to us from Australia to discuss visitor incidents in Western Australia, which is going to be our journal article. Then we're going to segue and talk about life, sunscreens, and COVID with a well-known society member and luminary, Dr. Ken Zafrin. So let's get to it. I've got a guest from Australia, Anna Maria Detna, and she has a paper out called The Visitor Incidents in Western Australia Protected Areas, 2011 to 2017. This is a six-year study that she and some others did. I think, actually, you're the only author on this. Is that right? Uh, yes. Thank you very much for inviting me, first of all. Yes, on this paper, I'm the sole author, but I'm actually working together with a few um, other researchers um, each of us doing different things. So yes, this one was myself. A lot of us, at least in our minds right now, with this COVID uh, thing going on, we can't travel. So you're going to be our travel agent. Hopefully you can help us visualize what Western Australia is like. This is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try, I'll try. Um, yes, so Western Australia is really big. It's a very large state and therefore it differs in climate and topography and population density. It's um, when you go from north to south, um, it changes dramatically. So basically what we talk about in size, um, it's a landmass of 2.5 million kilometer, uh, square kilometers, which is I think nearly 10 million square miles. When you compare that to the US, it's about one third, I think, of the size of the US land, um, landmass, if you don't count Alaska with it. So it's very big. And at the top in the north, you have tropical areas in the Kimberley region. And then you go a little bit further down south, you've got the desert, which is the Pilbara regions. And then you go further, further down south, uh, down to the Mediterranean areas, which is probably where most people live as well. So you have the national parks relatively differ. So you've got up in the Mitchell, in the north, you've got the Mitchell River, King Leopold or Karadini National Park in the desert. And then you've got the beautiful reef in the Pilbara region. It's called the Ningaloo Reef. So that's very, very popular for tourists to go to. And then you go a little bit further down south. You've got uh, Monkey Maya. And then you go down into the forest area. So you've got the Swan region where probably most people go. You've got lots of forests. And then you have a coast all along. So at the top, you've got Ningaloo, but at the bottom, you've got Tondrup, which is also a coastal national park. I would say we have everything that you want. You can go surfing, you can go snorkeling, you can go hiking, you can, yeah, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're taking Australia, you know, the reader, the reader, the listener. Uh, oh, well, if you guys are reading, that's good too, because I want you to read <laughs> um, article. So you just take an Australia and you're, cutting it maybe into a fourth and you get Western Australia. And what I see here is that for at least the Americans, Alaska is about 70 or yeah, 70% of Western Australia. So Alaska is smaller than Western Australia. So Western <laughs> okay, Australia yes. trumps Alaska by a third. Now, do you get snow over there? Uh, no. Mountains, no snow. Uh, actually, there is one down south, there's one um, mountain called Bluff Knoll, but we I don't know if I would call it snow. It's more when it's in winter, when it's really cold and really frosty and then it rains and we get that slight, 
little bit of a white coating of, but no, over in the Eastern Australia they do, but not here. Looks like there's quite a lot of national parks over there. What are their unique characteristics? Well, as much as Western Australia is diverse, all the national parks are really diverse as well. So I guess we have, I think in total there is about 1,000 protected areas. And of those, we have around 100 national parks and 17 marine parks in Western Australia. I think national parks though in Australia, uh, in the US are larger as such. So we have, some of the national parks are relatively small, but there's others that are quite big. So we have many and they all differ. So as I said, in the north, um, in one of the probably the most popular ones is the Karajini National Park. So it's very popular because of its geological formation. So it provides like a desert area and then all of a sudden you have those gorges that you climb into and then you've got the water areas and waterfalls and you you hike through those gorges, which is spectacular. It's like an oasis in the desert. And then you have in the same region, in the Pilbara region, you've got the Mingaloo, which you've got the reef outside, sandy beaches and, you know, pretty much endless sandy beaches along the coast there. And then down south, the national parks look very, very different because you have a hilly area where you've got curry forests and probably the most popular um, activity there is the hiking. And then again, you go down further down, you've got the coastal areas. So there's a lot of fishing, rock fishing, snorkeling, surfing, all those sorts of things as well. So as I guess as the topography changes, the, the national park change as well. Now, what, what's rock fishing? I know that's in um, the article. Yes, um, that's actually one of the most risky, uh, one of the riskiest activities in Western Australia, at least. So basically what that is, is as simple as it gets, people stand on rocks, on cliff rocks, and then they fish from there. So the, the problem why this is dangerous sometimes is you have to be relatively close to the ocean. And because it's rock fishing, it's very, very hard to get back in if you get washed out. So we're talking sometimes the oceans here are about three meter swells. And then you have the wind picking up and it's, you know, you've got those granite rocks and they get really slippery. So you, when the waves are coming, they, the, the ground gets really slippery. So you can't hold on to the ground anymore and you get washed out. And it's very difficult to come back in. So that's probably where the risk is. Well, and getting back to the Karajini National Park. So yep. I've never been there. This is the first time I've heard of it. And I'm looking at these pictures and I'm thinking, this is a combination of when we go to the upper plateaus of maybe in New Mexico or Utah, and like you were talking about this canyon, you get into these canyons. So it might look kind of flat from the outside with a few mountains or hills. And then you get into these canyons and it looks like what Americans would imagine uh, to have a suit by falls to look like beautiful. I mean, it's, you got these nice round canyons, these gorges, these pools of water that a lot of people could go canyoning in. And as I look at this, I'm going, wow, this could be dangerous. And I see that there's things that you had talked about, actually talks about this particular national park being of some concern with regard to some of the incidences that you talked about. So what happened, and as I guess you had over 400 cases recorded over the six-year time frame. 459. Yeah, 459. Would you mind discussing the breakdown of these cases? Basically, I should start from the perspective of the of the government here, because the reason why it started in 2011 is that year marks 
a big emphasis on trying to find out what's actually happened. So they had a couple of cases where there was inquests done and they found that they, um, it was more an anecdotal recording of incidents rather than a, a really good record of what there was. So they, they started to really encourage that everyone records and it's, it's all recorded and across the state in one database. So bringing it all together to really understand what's going on. The reason why I emphasize the size of Western Australia so much, it's because it's so big and it says so many different parks. That was a big, big project. I was lucky to get access to the data there and basically helping to put it all into perspective. So what we did um, is to count, first of all, how many incidents there were, but also trying to find out where they were, when they were, how severe they were. So we classified incidents into uh, minor incidents or major incidents or um, fatal incidents, so people when people died. There you go. So um, minor injured incidents is when there's no ambulance and it's basically just first aid that is required. But then with major incidents, it refers to major fractures or when there's severe head and neck injuries or things like that. And also when there's external agencies required like state emergency services or when, you know, police was required and big search and rescue activities were going on. So all of this is major incidents. And then, of course, if someone died, it was a fatal incident. But we also wanted to record the type of activity that was done beforehand and then the um, information on the visitor type. So their age, then residents, how many people were involved. And then we developed a, a way to characterize incidents by their incident type. So it's um, animal related or when there's trips and slips, like when people just slip during the hike. And then also when there's falls. And that was an interesting one because... In um, Serpentine National Park, for example, it's a relatively urban park. It's near an urban area. There's a waterhole and a little cliff, and mm. people start jumping from those cliffs. But So the falls is when people accidentally fall from somewhere. So when they fall down a cliff or when they fall down, even when they fall into a water body, only then it was a falls. Because otherwise, if people actually jump, into those water bodies, we call them water related because it's a deliberate action in, in the water. You've got these vast areas of like mountains, but you've also got these beautiful trees around us, the vegetation here. So it's arid, but it's still, you know, got plenty of vegetation, a whole array of different plants. But also I think the ongoing indigenous connection to this country is very important as well where the traditional owners are still actively looking after country, the law's still strong. So I think it's, it's just a whole range of things that makes this country really special. So it sounds like most of the incidents, about 60% were visitors from the state, Western Australia, and then you had international visitors, and then there were some that were from out of state. And what it sounds like, with regard to the makeup, is there are quite a lot of people that weren't adequately prepared? Like it's talked about, you know, somebody had a, an incident with a, a heat-related emergency. There were water-related fatalities, and then there was falling from a height related to rock fishing. So, do you have any information as to previous preparedness of these people? Experience? It doesn't sound like they we're very cognizant of the environment. Anything to comment with regard to the profile of a given patient? 
For that, I probably have to say that I've done some other studies where I've gone a little bit deeper into this. So this current study is more to provide an overview of those things. So an interesting thing you mentioned that the males being more likely to be involved in incident is, although we have an equal distribution, it's about half and half males and females, but males are actually more likely to be fatal. And the same happens with international visitors. So even though we have way more residents being involved in incidents, which probably reflects um, you know, the, the type of incident, uh, visitors overall, but they're also more likely to be fatal. So I think there's other factors in play. And what we found in another study, um, which I'm just about to publish, is basically there's a whole perception when places are managed, and there's been some previous research done in the US actually from Dr. Laura Ricard. She suggested that it's likely that when the more places are managed, the less people feel that it's dangerous. And the same happens with the perceptions of the more you manage the national park, the less people think it's a dangerous place, but it's, it's actually increasing their confidence levels as well, which I think might be dangerous if you don't understand that it's actually a very dangerous park. So those research, that research was done in Karajini. It's one of the most dangerous parks in WA, in Western Australia. Right. But still, I can't remember it by heart, but it's about 80-90% of people not thinking it's dangerous. And that was related to how much they think it's a managed place. And so if you go there and you see all those um, infrastructure and all those facilities, I think that really impacts how people prepare for those areas. And again, it's very, very remote. So just the fact that you break your leg means that you are out there for hours. And if someone comes, then it takes a long time for you to, to get out there. One of our national parks here in the United States that's pretty well managed is the Grand Canyon National Park. And we actually have a preventative search and rescue team that goes out and they talk to people before they descend down into the canyon, warning them of the effects of hyperthermia, making sure that they don't get dehydrated because a lot of people will go down maybe 15 kilometers down into the canyon or something like that. And then they realize, oh, that was easy, but then they have to go up. And mm -hmm. the bottom of the canyon can be about 39, 40 or higher degrees Celsius. And then of course at the top, you could actually have snow. So we mm -hmm. find that a lot of people are maybe not prepared. They go in their tennis shoes, their sneakers. I've seen a few people in high heels, which I can't believe. They usually don't go all the way down, but there's you know lack of preparedness because you know it does cost a lot to evacuate somebody by helicopter. So in comparison to what I described, what is the management resources like at Karajini, for instance, or Ningaloo? What, what do you guys have as far as managed national park area? It's interesting that you mentioned those two because they are really different. So Karajini is more of a confined space. So you have a few visitor areas and people tend to stay in those areas. And you've got ranges, although it's still big and ranges can't be everywhere, but rangers try to talk to people. So there's a camping spot and for people that normally people stay a couple of days or so. So they try to talk to those people and really explain what they would need to do. Ningaloo, on the other hand, is not as confined. So you have pretty much a stretch of all open beach and everyone just goes where 
they want to. So the resourcing is very different there. So that most of the information is relied, you, you know, you've got the signs or you've got pamphlets or, you, you know, where they try to reach people, but it's not. I think the actual talking to people isn't possible as much as encouraging you. Ningaloo, looking at this particular area, kind of reminds me of it's, it's on the northern point of Western Australia, like on a very large peninsula. So there's ocean there. There's a lot of possible water-related injuries and incidences and drownings there, I would imagine. And you're in a yes. very remote area. Okay. Yes, so in, in Ningaloo, there's a lot of snorkeling, obviously. And um, with snorkeling, you, you have your head in the water and you don't, there's a bit of a current that drags you along the coast. And you have your head in the water and sometimes you just don't realize how far you are. And then when you experience a problem, like you have a little bit of water coming into your snorkel and you're not an experienced snorkeler, you know, they're quite far out and then they panic. And then if you're not experienced, if you're not an experienced swimmer, sometimes you just um, underestimate the distances you would need to swim back to the shore or if you, especially if you're by yourself. So the main points of the paper, I guess the importance of the paper, I think one of the things would be to use the information here to enhance public safety in however measure that the um, Parks and Wildlife Service, the PWS would do. And also for litigation, are there, are you aware of any litigation stemming from some of these cases? Yes, unfortunately that happens that people demand compensation when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the the lessons learned from those incidents, I guess, to start with your first question there, is really trying to make people understand that most of those parks are really remote. So even if they appear to be managed by, you know, with facilities and all sorts of different things, they're really remote. So there was one incident, um, which is the group incidents that I explained in the article is um, involving eight people where five people were washed into the ocean. Unfortunately, one of them died. Basically, it happened at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by the time you reach the ranger and, um, you know, the incident and uh, like action commences to rescue people until they're actually rescued, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. So imagine to be in the water for five hours is a very, very long time. And similar things happen in other land-based parks as well. It's not just the water. It's, it's everywhere. It's just so remote. You have... The urban area is down south in Perth, where pretty much everyone lives. And then you have little towns scattered across state. It just takes a long time. So I think that's the main point to make people to understand that. Sounds like you have a substantial amount of people. 58% of people are from Western Australia, WA. And they're likely from Perth. And that being an urban area, they'll go into the wilds, into the, mm. the backcountry, and then they'll get in trouble. And as if things would normally function in a city, they go out there, they get in trouble for whatever reason, and then they expect some sort of a compensation, which I guess we don't really address here, but it does bring interesting issues. And I'm sure this paper would help a court determine that, well, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, no surprise. These places are dangerous. Proceed yeah. at your own risk, right? Yes, yes. Um, yes, definitely. And there is some push as well that people should be made aware. So putting the actual statistics on the signs 
might be a good idea. Yeah, I, I personally think that might be a strategy that could work, that people know. So what has started, though, they, that the signs now say people have died on those places. Sometimes I think even indicating how people have died. So just that people get an awareness of, you know, even though it looks very calm at the moment, it might not in the next five or ten minutes, it might change. Also, there's a big message now that um, on those signs, when you enter national parks, what the, what the department has now started to put out is that safety is their concern, but it's the visitor's responsibility. So this is actively communicated to the visitor that they, that they take on their own responsibility for those incidents as well. Then we have the other side of it, the more adventurous gorges like Hancock Gorge where it's just carved out of sheer rock. It's narrow and uh, the colours in it um, of the rocks and just walking down through there. And it really is an adventure to go down into those gorges. And I think that's the main attraction. But when people do get here, they're amazed at the vegetation and the how beautiful the whole landscape is really. And, and that's really, I guess, what brings people back as well. Yes, yeah, so WA is a beautiful place. If it's all going back to normal at some stage, um, feel free to visit. That sounds really amazing. I mean, it seems like the eastern side of Australia gets all the attention, but this place sounds wonderful. It is, it is. And especially if you don't, um, if you're into remoteness, if you're into nature, um, Western Australia is beautiful. And as I said, it's so diverse. You can find everything from beaches to mountains to... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I have Ken Zaffron. Everybody knows Ken. They know you. If they don't know you, they will know you after this podcast. So I want to welcome you to the podcast. And that's a Thanks, nice girl. First, let's talk about you, the man. Uh, you've been prolific in wilderness medicine, travel medicine, and of course, emergency medicine. But I wanted to know, Ken, what actually got you on this journey? Well, the wilderness came first. I uh, discovered the wilderness at a fairly early age, uh, but growing up in Ohio, there wasn't a lot of wilderness around. And so I was about uh, 16 when I went on my first backpack trip in Idaho, and I was, I was hooked. I think the rest kind of flows from there. I graduated with a degree in mathematics in Florida, but I was spending most of my time in Colorado anyway. Then I uh, was a climbing bum for a while in Boulder, worked at a bookstore. Nice. and started doing mountain rescue. And mountain rescue led me to uh, go to graduate school in geography. Actually, it was my love of the mountains, and mountain rescue was just part of that. Turned out I was first one on the scene fairly often during mountain rescue in Boulder County, and I didn't know that much about medicine or anything. I, I had advanced first aid. That was what we were required to have. So I thought, I, I better take an EMT course. So I took my EMT course, and I spent twice as much time as I was supposed to have to spend in the emergency department, 100 hours versus 50 hours, if I recall correctly. And I was hooked on emergency medicine, and the rest of my path has flowed from there. And then you've been able to combine them both, which, again, is quite a big achievement. As far as medicine, when I was finishing up residency in the 90s, the traditional house of medicine thought, Wilderness medicine, you're really off your rocker. They thought it was just some kind of a fringe idea. 
you were around for some of those times too during that time when the traditional house of medicine said what is this this is worthless what what was it like for you in those early days well i did my uh residency also in the early 90s i had a few side trips or <laughs> doing residency i actually got into my residency partly because the residents chose the uh, the oncoming residents I did my residency at Kern Medical Center in Bakersfield, California. And one of the people who was on the committee, the resident committee to choose the next residents, knew me from the Wilderness Medical Society, where I'd gotten in everybody's face being the official photographer. And uh, he said, we got to get Ken. And that's how I ended up at Bakersfield. That's a much longer story than that, but I won't bore you with the details. And uh, did my residency. And in fact, the... Um, our chair, uh, Gene Kircher, was a big wilderness medicine fan. And when I got invited to go to Antarctica, I was sure that uh, my residency director would, would nix the idea and Gene would be all for it. Well, Gene was all for it. And my residency director, Tom Purcell, took one look at me when I suggested this. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. You can take a month of elective and a month of vacation and you're on the trip. Wow. So that, that was pretty good. And that was after doing the same thing uh, the uh, previous year to work in Nepal. So I had a pretty supportive residency. I didn't feel that wilderness medicine was uh, way out of the mainstream and crazy. It may be, but I didn't feel that way. Oh, that's great. Wow. Well, we definitely have different experiences, but I feel that, you know, talking to several individuals, one of the common themes in the inception of wilderness medicine were the right circumstances at the right time and certainly early on now and now as our people that we mentor are you know looking for opportunities it's um, maybe i don't i wouldn't say it's becoming far and few between it's just becoming more interesting it's evolving a lot more and you actually alluded to nepal so we're interested you've been very why, why did you choose nepal why didn't you choose south america you've been to a lot of places around the world what drew you to nepal just to back up a little bit you know we we made our own opportunities we we're both climbers and, and uh, i don't know your whole story but we made our own opportunities and now we have gym courses and advanced wilderness life support and we didn't even have the wilderness medical society when i was in medical school and so it's much easier and harder for people going through it now. Uh, people always ask me, you know, how did you do it? And uh, what should I do? And I don't know. You really want to take a dim course? Uh, and it might help you. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of, it's a very different now, as you know. Right. So uh, I actually uh, spent a fair amount of time in South America. I uh, made my first trip to South America in 1978 to try to go up. Uh, Chimborazo, a true wilderness medical experience. I, I was involved in a rescue of my friend with Pace. In, uh, I'd always wanted to go to Nepal, and I'd read everything I could get a hold of about Tibet very early on, like in the early 70s. And I really wanted to go to Nepal. And of course, Tibet was closed in those days. And in 1980, I got the opportunity to go on a medical expedition in Nepal that was run by the Johns Hopkins School of public health. And the, the leader was uh, Carl Taylor, who was the chair of international health at Johns Hopkins, an amazing man. And his son had the company that put the trip together. 
and was on our trip, uh, Dan will tailor ride. And I learned so much on that trip. But in 1980, I really wanted to go uh, to Nepal. And I was in the medical science and training program at the University of Washington with my PhD supposed to be in physiology. And uh, they nearly kicked me out of the program, but I went anyway. <laughs> that is, I, they nearly kicked me out of the program after I got back. And, and uh, I went on to trek around Manaslu in Nepal, and I was totally hooked on Nepal at that point. Namaste. You BBC Nepali Seva ko podcast ho. You podcast ma tapai BBC Nepali Seva le tayar pare ko vivid audio samagri haru sunna saknon cha. And you were instrumental, correct me if I'm wrong, in maybe starting the Himalayan Rescue Association. Right now you're a co-medical director. Can you tell us a little more about that? The Himalayan Rescue Association was actually started in 1973 by a Peace Corps volunteer named John Scow. Wasn't medical at all but he knew people were dying in the Himalayas. And he started the HRA. It started in a yak herder's hut in Parache on the way to Everest Base Camp. The first uh, person to work there was a French nurse. The next one was uh, Dolly Lefebvre, who's a nurse practitioner, uh, does OBGYN in Anchorage, who I met much later. Uh, the French nurse was more interested, apparently, in, in sex and men than taking care of trekkers. Dolly was from the plains of Canada and uh, fit in pretty well there uh, once she got used to the mountains. And then after that, they had a doctor, you may have heard of him, Peter Hackett. I'll have to look him up. Is he uh, published? Uh, yeah, he's published a couple of things. Yeah. I, I got interested in that. And the Himalayan Rescue Association had just started this little hut of a clinic at uh, Feriche. They stationed a nurse up there in Feriche in 73, uh, Dolly Lefevre, and uh and there was a physician, Jim Winter, from England, who spent a, a short time there. And it was a very primitive thing. They rented a, a little yak herder's hut. Peter uh, was the one that, that put that on the map, yeah, really. The uh, medical director was uh, David Schlimm for many years. And David appointed me at the HRA in 1979 in the fall, so I worked a season then. I, I worked another season shortly after uh, that. Did I say 1979? I meant 1989, sorry. I worked another season during residency uh, when uh, David decided to leave Nepal, basically because the air pollution had gotten so bad, among other things, and moved back to the States. He left uh, Buddha Bosnia, who was the associate medical director in charge of medical direction. Buddha and I had already become pretty good friends, and he said, would you like to take over uh, what uh, Gil Roberts used to do, which is make sure that there were volunteers. Hmm. Uh, Gil Roberts was a physician in uh, Berkeley. He was the doctor on the 1963 Everest expedition. Tom Hornbein, of course, uh, climbed Everest on that expedition. Anyway, Gil had been uh, doing this, and uh, I asked Gil if Buddha wanted me to take over. I said, uh, you know, I don't feel right about taking over. You're doing it. He goes, well, it's time to, time to give it up and you're the perfect person. About 10 days later, I had all the, of course, this is before email, so I had all the, the applications, paper applications in a big manila envelope uh, from Gil. Nice. I've been doing that since uh, 1992 or three. Of course, the volunteers don't need recruiting, they recruit themselves. At one point, I was mostly doing it from North America, but now the world has become a small place, so I pretty much have kept doing that. Time for me to give it up one of these days, too. But. Wow. 
Well, it's it's not like a great thing. It's very popular and it's hard to get into now. It's quite competitive. Yeah. It's fairly competitive, although pretty much we, that balances out because you have to do three months. So that, that cuts down the, the pool of possible applicants. The current waiting list is uh, usually it's about two years on average before I'm able to assign somebody and we assign a year in advance. Of course, right now, uh, we're going to have a season this fall, but it's going to be Nepali doctors because we can't bring doctors to Nepal at this point. In the last couple of years, we've had problems with credentialing the doctors. Previously, we didn't have to formally credential them with the Nepal Medical Council. and Now we do. You've really been able to, I think, through your trekking and your exploits expedition, you've been actually able to get yourself involved internationally, international wilderness medicine, what I call wilderness national medicine. And you've added a lot of research components and you've basically been on several committees. Obviously, you're very involved with WMS, with the journal. You're involved with the International Society of Mountain Medicine, obviously ICAR. What has that done for you and what have you been most pleased with? Or what are two things that you would say, wow, I really accomplished something being part of the research that you've done or the committees that you've served on? Well, that's a tough question. (laughs) One of the things I've been able to do in, in Nepal, which I haven't mentioned, is some of the trips are not just fun trips. They're all fun, but some of them aren't just fun. So I've been to Gosankun Lake where the Every year, there's a big health camp for pilgrimage, the Johnny Pornima pilgrimage. The first year, 2014, there were 10,000 people there. We saw 770 patients, most of them, in hundreds of cases of acute mountain sickness. I think it was nine cases of high-altitude cerebral edema. And I wrote that up, and I was actually hoping that the take-home message from the write-up would be the way to treat high-altitude cerebral edema is give one dose of dexamethasone, put the people on oxygen until you can find a porter to carry them down. And then the porter carries them down. That's the treatment. And the HRA has been doing that for about 25 years, sometimes with doctors and sometimes without. It's so simple to take care of high-altitude cerebral edema. What, what I've accomplished, you know, it's hard to say I, I haven't accomplished anything on my own. Those committees are all uh, teams. I was lucky enough to be the author of the revision of the paper that got all of the mountain rescue groups worldwide to use vacuum mattresses. I wasn't on the commission when the first paper was written, but I wrote, helped write the update. The International Commission for Alpine Rescue Medical Commission is a commission that exists to make recommendations to mountain rescue teams. It's, uh, it's been fairly Eurocentric over the years, and it's still Eurocentric, but I don't tell anybody, any of my European friends, they all know. They just don't like to hear that word. When I joined that commission in 1995, there hadn't really been American representation. And a guy named Bill Clem, who I met through the Wilderness Medical Society, put together a team of Americans to represent the United States on the four commissions, helicopter or helicopter rescue, ground rescue, uh, or terrestrial rescue, avalanche, and medical. Those are the four commissions. Bill asked me if I would represent the United States on the medical commission. I said, yes. So I've been doing that ever since. And I was welcomed with open arms you know, because they realized that if they want to write recommendations for the world, they need to have contacts in the rest of the world. And mountain rescue, as you know, and probably most people listening to this podcast know, is very different in North America and South America and hardly exists anywhere else except Europe. One of the main 
things that I do, I now represent the Mountain Rescue Association. Well, actually, I don't even anymore. I've managed to pass that on to two uh, more deserving people. And the way I was able to stay on the commission was that the Mountain Rescue Association nominated me as an honorary member of ICAR. So now I don't have a vote or anything, but I'm still allowed to go. The, one of my main duties was to bring this back to the Mountain Rescue Association, what I learned. The Mountain Rescue Association, for those who don't know, is an organization of North American mountain rescue uh, groups. I'll tell you, speaking at the Mountain Rescue Association, where there aren't very many doctors, but a lot of people, uh, we call them ground pounders sometimes, right. a lot of rescuers who are interested in, in medicine, this is one of the best things that I do on a regular basis is give them talks. And uh, for instance, the hypothermia talk, they, they now know how to avoid after drop and circumrescue collapse in their victims. They, they know that because I've talked to the people that are actually out there rescuing the victims. Right. We've written some, uh, some papers about how this works. It's, it's amazing. So this, you know, this outreach is extremely important getting out the information about wilderness medicine to a bunch of groups, not the least of which is the mountain rescuers. You've taken leadership in a lot of these things, and I like the way you pass it off. You've mentored people around the world, which, you know, is phenomenal for a lot of us. What is one thing, if you've tried to inculcate some kind of a value, what one thing or two things would you say you want to instill in those that you mentor or have mentored? Well, I'm gonna, I'll take the two things. Uh, <laughs> the first one is something I learned from Oris Vigat, who was the chairman of the, or the president of the ICAR Medical Commission when I joined in 1995. And Oris said, we have to do good work. We have to write good recommendations. But the most important thing is that we have to be friends. That, that's the most important thing, because otherwise we won't be able to do good work. And as you mentioned earlier, I have friends all over the world now and some very close European friends. You know, we do a lot of collaboration on scientific and medical work. I'm Lucky Day. I'm Ned Niederlander. I'm Dusty Bottoms. So together we're the Three Amigos. It's been a wonderful experience to have all these, these friends everywhere and see that doctors and mountain rescuers are very much the same. Although the cultures may be a little different, the values are different. That brings me to the second point, which is we have to do the best we can for our patients. Everything that, that I do, you know, medicine, writing uh, articles and stuff is focused on how are we going to deliver the best possible care in what's usually a fairly unpleasant, harsh environment, maybe not unpleasant so much as difficult to work in. Right. And, and that, that's what guides, guides me. And I do a lot of things that, where that doesn't seem to be yeah, as obvious these days, but it's, it's all, that's, that's the goal. And one thing that I learned, and I, I know you learned yeah, early on, is the rescuer comes first. When I went to medical school, there was, you know, the patient comes first. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not really 100% true where I work. Because if something happens to me, the patient's going to be dead last. It's going to be me, my team, and then the patient. They're number three. There's a guy named Charlie Shemansky. You probably know Charlie, a mountain rescuer from 
Colorado, uh, who's done a lot of interesting things, accomplished a lot, and is now the president of the Helicopter uh, Commission of the ICAR. Many years ago, I was organizing a meeting in, I think it was the one in Steamboat Springs in maybe 1996. That meeting, I asked Charlie if he'd talk about risks to the mountain rescuers, which he did, and he's been doing it ever since. And of course, EMTs learn scene safety, so doctors should learn that too. So Ken, you've recently published Sunscreen for Adventure Travel. This is an EPUB that we can give the readers the information on our podcast notes. This is a very interesting thing. And we're also talking because we had a little discussion through the email concerning a podcast that I did a few years ago, and you wanted to maybe give us some update. And I thought, you know, sunscreens aren't talked about very often. We talk about the great things like high altitude illness and diving emergencies and things like that. Sunscreens are very important, and there's been a lot of change. There's a lot of marketing out there. So I was wondering if you could briefly just touch on a few things of the paper, and then we can talk about some things after that and go from there. Sure. Just to introduce the paper, it's going to appear in a special themed issue of Journal of Travel Medicine. A couple years ago, Jenny Visser from Wellington, New Zealand, who's a travel medicine doc and president of the Asia Pacific Travel Health Society, asked me if I would help her with this special issue. David Schlim and Buddha Bosnia had also uh, helped us with the issue, but there's going to be a special issue of the Journal of Travel Medicine on wilderness and adventure travel. But one of the things that seemed to be a, a sticking point for me was, well, you know, there's this SPF4. SPF stands for Sun Protection Factor. The quick definition, probably everybody listening to this podcast already knows, is if you can stay in the sun and not get red for 10 minutes, this sunburn, that's a sun protection factor of zero because you're not using anything. If you put on sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 30, you can stay out 30 times as long before you get sunburned or get red. It's called erythema, erythema dose. And that's 300 minutes. That's you know, five hours. That's pretty useful, right? right? Especially for me. Now, I've got a red beard and I've got type 2 skin. I actually can tan. I'm not a true redhead. <laughs> but uh, but I have to be pretty careful, and I go places like Dopo in the summer, which is Nepal's at the latitude of Miami, Florida, more or less. I think it's actually Orlando. So what we're talking about is the MED, the minimal erythema dose. Now, there's several types of skin, according to Fitzpatrick. There's six types of skin where you have type 1, which is white, never tans. They tend to have very high cancer susceptibilities. Type 4 could be an olive skin individual who tans easily. And then type six is black or dark brown, somebody who tans readily and profusely with a low cancer susceptibility. And then, of course, in Adolpo, most of the time you're spending your nights at 4,000 meters. By the way, went over six passes over 5,000 meters. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of work. I may be getting old, but I'm not too old to get over those passes. I'm just a lot slower than I used to be. So sunscreen is pretty important to me, and I don't claim to be an expert. I did, did finally find an actual expert to bounce my ideas off. I decided to write an article about sunscreen, mostly focusing on this one point, which is that they talk about SPF inflation or diminishing returns. And so if you have a, a 30 sunscreen, and I, I forget because the article is not in front of me, it blocks about 95% of the UV that the dangerous UV, UV, UVA. 
And if you go up to 50, it blocks like something like 97 and a half percent. So that's only two and a half percent more UV that's blocked. But that's totally unimportant. What I care about is not how much UV gets blocked. I care about how much UV your face gets, whatever your exposed skin is. It cuts it in half from 5% to 2.5% to go from 30 to 50. There's a lot of literature about how to calculate the SPFs. And they do it with simulated sunshine and volunteers. And it's, it's fairly non-standard, really. But no one goes up to the top of the Kong Law and Dopo in the summer and measures how much insulation there is. Not insulation, but insulation. Right, insulation. Right. And just, just as a slight aside, did you know that you can have more than 100% of predicted insulation on a given day? You allude to that in the article, yes. When I was a graduate student in geography, I took a course in, uh, I think it was climate, climatology, a field course. And we were up on the above Niwot Ridge in Colorado at about 12,000 feet. And we measured sun that was being refracted by the edge of a cloud at well over 100% of the predicted value. The point of the article is, yes, SPF does matter. Yes, the higher is better. And for a number of reasons, nobody really knows whether it's necessary even in the harshest conditions. But I go into some pretty harsh conditions. and A lot of other people do too. A lot of the, uh, the articles were things like windsurfing at the equator, right? People are out there <laughs> and, uh, or near the equator. Because when you put on sunscreen, almost nobody ever puts on enough. And enough is the amount that the SPF is based on. There's a certain amount per unit area of the body. And no one uses enough sunscreen in practice. And so there's different ways to get around it. A lot of dermatologists swear by reapplying the sunscreen. Mm. Yeah. Are you aware of any evidence supporting that, though? No, that's what I was saying. I looked look for all the evidence. The mm. evidence is if, if you go swimming... Yeah, even if your sunscreen is water resistant or waterproof, but anyway, but basically you got to reapply. You don't have to reapply every seventy minutes, and at least in my opinion, that uh, based on my own experiences trekking in Nepal during monsoon season, which just means afternoon thunderstorms, it's not pouring rain all the time most of the time. That you don't really have to reapply, but you should be using the highest SPF that you can reasonably find. If you're going high altitude, even in New Mexico, around 4,000 meters where your mountains top out, that's a pretty big dose of, uh, of sunlight, UV. And UV is not benign. You know, bad sunscreen increases your risk for cancer. And UV also causes skin aging, photo aging. So unless you want to look like a piece of leather and maybe have cancer, which could be melanoma, which could be fatal, and you don't want to get a sunburn. Young et al. writes in the 2016 American Academy of Dermatology the impact of UVA and UVB on the skin. For instance, there's going to be molecular and cellular damage, such as DNA photo damage and its repair or mutation. There's going to be inflammation from the generation of reactive oxygen species, gene and protein expression, and melanogenesis, which of course makes you tan. But you're also going to have apoptosis, aka cell death, Langerhans cell depletion, which speaks to immunosuppression, vitamin D photosynthesis, which is something that we will talk about soon. And interestingly, for UVA, nitric oxide release, what do you think that could do? Well, that could reduce blood pressure via nitric oxide and 
Later on, as we talk about high altitude, the generation of nitric oxide could paradoxically help with regard to high altitude, but we haven't studied this. In a study of 35 adults given a diagnosis of actinic keratosis, those are those large brown crusty lesions seen in the elderly with a history of solar exposure long-term, or those skin cancer or solar elastosis. That's basically the break apart of elastin from the sun. Well, these things were significantly diminished by at least twice daily application of a sunscreen consisting of 7% oxythilocinamate, 6% oxybenzone, and 5% octyl salicylate, which blocks UVB and short wavelength UVI compared to a placebo over a period of two years. And in that same two years, they found that photoaging is reduced by at least 25%. But it's important when you choose your sunblock agent, make sure it's broad spectrum covering not only UVB, but UVA. You need at least a small shot glass, two grams per centimeter squared of the sunscreen for adequate protection. SPF of 45, and I run out of it. And I asked my friend, yo friend, we're at 4,000 meters. Do you have any sunscreen? And he gives me this SPF of 70 plus, which is good. Do I confer the protection of the 70 or am I still gonna be limited with the 45, because I previously applied the 45 or the 25. Oh, you'll start getting the benefit of the 70 as soon as you apply it. There aren't too many articles on sunscreens and talking about geographic variability. So like you said, you can go to the Everest region in Nepal, which will have the same latitude as Orlando, but Orlando's at sea level. And there's a few vagaries, obviously, in the Everest base camp area, first of all, believe for every, see, 300 meters, 1,000 feet of elevation, you're increasing the UVA and UVB exposure by about 10%, which is interesting. And then of course, as you go up in latitude, you're decreasing it, or as you're going down in latitude, you're increasing the exposure by about 4%. And this is interesting too, that UVB exposure is 100 times greater in the month of June than September. UVA doesn't vary as much during the day. So in Alaska, where I happen to live, the UVA exposure is much longer because our days are long. Our day currently on July 24th is still longer than 17 hours of sunlight. Right. And by the way, if you ever go above the Arctic Circle and, and visit the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, it's one of the hottest places I've ever been because, or I've ever tried to sleep because there's no shade because there are no trees. The sun is above the horizon the whole time, and the inside of your tent is warm, and you can't sleep out of the tent because the mosquitoes are too fierce. So that makes for some pretty hot, hot nights. So can you actually mix a sunscreen and a mosquito repellent? Do you know much about that body of literature? Yeah, it's not in my, uh, my chapter, but yes, you, you can, but you, you should be careful about it. Yeah, uh, I've seen a number of recommendations, and my recollection is that you put the, uh, I think it's the bug dope on first. The bug dope. But you, you could put it on second as long as you allow some time for the sunscreen to basically set. When you put on sunscreen, the first sunscreen that was a modern sunscreen was, was made with PABA, paraminobenzoic acid. It was called pre-sun, and that emphasized the fact you had to put it on about half an hour early. Some of the sunscreen these days has similar 
yeah, but much nicer, yeah, more user-friendly compounds in it. And some has nano uh, titanium, which is a physical sunscreen. But you should put the sunscreen on and basically let it dry, ideally for 10 or 15 minutes before you put clothing on over it. I don't think it makes that much difference. Again, the actual evidence is pretty slim, but you should put on the, the bug dope first, let that sit for a while in the sunscreen. But I think you can reapply the bug dope pretty safely once the sunscreen's on. Now we do have a few mosquitoes in Alaska. They're not quite as fierce as the brown bears. <laughs> and they're not quite as large as the brown bears, but they're much more numerous. Now, there's another consideration, which is if you're going to be going using your sunscreen, say surfing in Hawaii, you don't want to poison the coral reefs. Right. And that is something that's beyond my area of expertise, but would be useful. I believe they've actually now made it uh, illegal to use certain sunscreens. Of course, the best way to not get burned is to cover up. And not just any clothing, because normal clothing doesn't have that high a sun protection factor, but there's plenty of sun-resistant clothing. That, and the real experts on this are people in Australia, which is a country that's made up of mostly fair-skinned individuals with incredible UV exposure and extremely high rate of melanoma that they've now basically been flattening the curve on. And they, yeah, of course, have the slip, slap, slop mnemonic that basically has to do with covering up and putting on a lot of sunscreen, staying out of the sun during the mid part of the day. But you can't do that in Nepal when you're trekking. You know, we're in this COVID thing, so everybody's bringing everything back to COVID. But you know, we talk about those who are more susceptible to some of the complications of COVID may have decreased vitamin D levels. They did a study in England about this and the clouds and, you know, dark skin versus light skinned individuals and whatnot. And the fact that, you know, some people will decry sunscreening because it might decrease, you know, vitamin D levels that you would make endogenously from the sun. Do you think that sunscreen use could potentially increase any complications with COVID? That's a great question. And I don't think anybody knows, but coming back to wilderness medicine and its applications, fairly early in the COVID epidemic, there was a uh, emergency medicine critical care doc in New York who did a podcast, a YouTube video, and another critical care doctor in New York who wrote a paper in which they said that COVID-19 is like high-altitude pulmonary edema, and therefore we should start looking at treatments. So, of course, it's not. Now, one of the things that this guy said in the YouTube video is these people have really low oxygen saturations, but they're not short of breath. Now, I've taken care of lots of people with high-altitude pulmonary edema in my career. I can't remember one who wasn't short of breath, and that's because you got fluid in your alveoli, and you're drowning, and you're short of breath. But if you just have low oxygen, like in COVID, that's not going to make you short of breath. Right. I've never right. seen anybody with hate not be dyspneic. Right. And so the, the etiology of hate has to do with increased pulmonary artery pressure. So I've written a couple or co-written a couple articles on COVID-19 is not hate. And uh, I was uh, happy to do a little podcast yeah. for uh, EM Rap and in which I explained yeah, to who knows how many thousand emergency physicians that COVID-19 is not hate. I think the critical care docs were also watching that. So wilderness medicine may seem kind of far-fetched, but it does have applications if only to debunk someone's weird theory. <laughs> yeah, 
and it's not, let me put it this way, it's not cut and dried that decreasing your pulmonary artery pressure would be a bad thing in COVID-19, but it's probably true. However, there's a group at Harvard who were trying to work on using nitric oxide, not nitrous oxide, nitric oxide, NO, to, uh, for people with COVID-19, and they had three arms, ICU patients, hospitalized patients, and outpatients who were going to get NO. And the last I heard, they got it going just in time for the surge to be over in Boston and weren't able to recruit enough subjects. But the mechanism of NO was supposed to be direct toxicity to the virus, not Oh, not so much pulmonary vasodilation. Not the effects on pulmonary artery pressure. So wilderness medicine sometimes comes into the mainstream. That's interesting because when we started talking, you and I, we talked about how out of the mainstream wilderness medicine was in its inception. And look, we've come full circle in this age now. This is wonderful. So to answer your question about vitamin D, uh, I'm not completely convinced. That was what my math professor said when my proof had a hole in it. I don't think I'm completely convinced that we should yeah. stop using sunscreen. One of the, the uh, reviewers said, well, you can't prove that you need the, you know, this much extra blocking. I said, I, I can't prove it. I'm just, this is just a suggestion. I'm saying, I don't know, so I'd rather be safe than sorry. Right. Wear a mask versus not wearing a mask when you're inhaling those COVID particles. I like it. Yeah, I think that would be a good analogy. Well, do you have anything else to add before we let you on your way to catch some mosquitoes and hopefully not any brown bears? No, Daryl, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. It's been a total pleasure. I've been, as I told you earlier, listening to the previous podcasts in this time of the pandemic and enjoying all of the, the podcasts and hope there are many more to come and happy to help out in one, I hope. Thank you for all you've done with wilderness medicine and inspiring so many of us just to you know do better and then just your involvement so yeah thanks a lot that's the most ridiculous thing i ever heard okay we're done the wilderness and environmental medicine live podcast from the Wilderness Medical Society, our official journal, is published by Elsevier. Do the CME questions at wms.org under members and no coughing.